Hey everyone, it's Ariel Hawani, and I wanted to let you know that each and every week I'm part of a great program called the Ringer MMA Show. I host it alongside two absolutely brilliant minds. Their names, Chuck Mendenhall and Pete Carroll. And every Thursday, a new episode drops where we preview the weekend in mixed martial arts and react to all the biggest news. Plus, after every UFC pay-per-view, we give you a post-fight show. So this is what you have to do. Just follow the Ringer MMA show on your Spotify app so you don't miss an episode. We'll talk to you then. It's Off the Pike, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of this episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus in D.C. and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit rg-help.com. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Welcome into Off the Pike. I'm Brian Barrett. We are football heavy today, baby. Getting closer to the season. My buddy John Jastrzemski, JJ, of course, from New York, New York. He's going to join us in just a little bit. And JJ and I, we did a couple of segments for our FanDuel TV show, which you can watch every Thursday. And it's on DirecTV Channel 602, Comcast, Xfinity, 260 every Thursday we're on there on the local angle FanDuel TV so JJ and I basically we went through a bunch of questions in the AFC East because JJ of course is in New York covers the Jets and also he is a Dolphins super fan so basically what we did we came up with some burning questions in the division and I'll give you a little tease here on one of them is will Mac be better than Tua this year or what's more likely will Mac be better than Tua or will Tua be better than Aaron Rodgers we got into who's going to have the best defense In the division, we got into also, will the Bills take a step back? Also, who will have the most drama in the division? So we'll get into all that stuff with JJ in just a little bit from our FanDuel TV show. I do have to finish up my top five series in terms of the Celtics. And today is the final one of my top five positions. So my top five wings since the start of 2000, number one and number two were easy to figure out. After that, it gets a little bit more difficult. So we'll get into that in a little bit as well. But I do want to start with the Patriots and just sort of the formula of them actually making a run and getting into the postseason. We know it's going to be an absolute battle, and we'll get into this with JJ in terms of the division. So the first thing would be, if you were going to make a run and get into the playoffs and actually do some damage when you got there, the first thing would be, Matt gets into the elite quarterback conversation, or at least the verge of it, right? Like we've seen the past two seasons, these teams that have taken massive step forward or taken massive steps forward in terms of making deep playoff runs, 
Joe Burrow turned into an elite quarterback in year two. Jalen Hurts turned into an elite quarterback, right? We saw the same thing happen in 2020 with Josh Allen when he turned into an elite quarterback, right? So I don't see that being a realistic possibility with some of the limitations Mac has physically, right? And this is not supposed to be an indictment on Mac. I just don't see him in the same neighborhood as those guys. So the first way you make this deep playoff run, or at least just get back into the postseason, is Mac turns into a super elite level quarterback. Don't see that happening. Okay, so that's the way we see most of these teams making the jump. But the good news is for the Patriots, there is another path to this, okay? Now, the AFC is loaded, not just the division, so it's going to be very difficult to see the Patriots making a deep playoff run. But hey, for the sake of this conversation, if you get into the tournament, you have a chance, right? Let's just use that for the hypothetical, for the sake of this conversation. Can you get back into the playoffs? And then you have a chance, right? Okay. So we've seen teams without elite quarterbacks make deep runs into the postseason fairly recently, right? So let's just look at last season. The 49ers did it with Brock Purdy. And then, of course, he got hurt in the title game. The 49ers, the year prior, made it to the NFC title game with Jimmy G. And that year, the Rams won the Super Bowl with Matthew Stafford, who is a good quarterback. He's nowhere near an elite quarterback, right? He's in that second tier of quarterbacks, right? Not a guy that can carry your franchise, but he's pretty good. He's a competent quarterback, right? But definitely not an elite quarterback, right? He's not in the Brady, the Rodgers, that territory, right? The Joe Burrow, he's not in that group. Okay, 2020, you actually had all elite quarterbacks in the Final Four. Josh Allen, breakout season, Pat Mahomes, Mahomes is Mahomes. You had Brady and you had Aaron Rodgers, right? Like two of the greatest quarterbacks of all time, or I should say three of the greatest quarterbacks of all time, and Josh Allen. 2019, you had two teams without elite quarterbacks. The Niners, again, with Jimmy G., who made the Super Bowl, and the Titans with Ryan Tannehill made the AFC title game. So let's go to 2018. Won that year. The Rams made the Super Bowl with Jared Goff. Then if you go to 2017, you actually had three. The Jaguars with Blake Bortles. We remember that game. That was, you really had to sweat that one out from a Patriots perspective. After Gronk went down with the injury, remember, Amadola was outstanding and yeah, the crazy Miles Jack play. I think we talked about that recently on the pod. But the Eagles with Nick Foles who did play like an elite quarterback in the Super Bowl, but certainly not an elite quarterback. And the Vikings with Case Keenum. Case Keenum made it to the NFC title game that year. So over the last six seasons, you've had nine teams that have made it to the conference championship game without an elite quarterback. So that's nine of 24. It's 37.5%. That's not bad, right? So not a unbelievable number, but it's a higher number than I thought it would be. You would think that it's always elite quarterbacks living in the conference championship game. It actually hasn't been the case. Nine out of 24 of these teams have been teams without elite level quarterback play, right? So then I look at, okay, what's sort of the formula here? So top 10 rushing offenses, 2022 San Francisco, 136.8 per game. That was seventh. 2021 San Francisco, 124.6. That was seventh. 2019 San Francisco, 153.5, that was second. 2019 Titans, 143.5, that was third. 2018 Rams, 139.1, that was third. 2017 Jaguars, 141.2, that was first in the NFL, Leonard Fournette and company. 2017 Eagles, 130.8, that was third. 2017 Vikings, 117.9, that was seventh. So of the nine teams without an elite quarterback to make the NFC title game, or the title game in general, AFC or NFC title game, eight of them, eight of those nine had top 10 rushing offenses. The only team that didn't was the 2021 Rams. That's the only team during this stretch in terms of 
teams without elite quarterbacks making it to the conference championship game. The only team that didn't do it was the 2021 Rams. So eight out of nine. So then let's look at the defenses in terms of top 10 scoring defenses. 2022 San Francisco, 17.2 was first. 2021 San Francisco, 20.6 was fifth. 2021 Rams, 21.3, that was ninth. 2019 San Francisco, 19.5 points per game, that was seventh. The 2019 Titans right outside the top 10 at 20.6, that was 11th. The 2018 Rams, 23.3 points per game, this is the outlier, they were 18th. The 2017 Vikings, 17.4, that was second. The 2017 Jaguars, 17.7, that was third. And the 2017 Eagles, 18.2, that was fourth. So of those nine teams, seven had top 10 defenses and one was right outside the top 10 at 11 in the Tennessee Titans. So all nine of those teams had at least a top 10 defense or a top 10 rushing offense, right? And six out of the nine teams had both a top 10 rushing offense and a top 10 scoring defense. The 2022 Niners, the 2021 Niners, the 19 Niners, the 17 Vikings, the 17 Jaguars, and the 17 Eagles. So look, as I've stated, the AFC is absolutely loaded, and it's going to be difficult, A, to make the playoffs in your division, and B, to make any sort of run there. But at least there is a path in recent history where you can say, hey, can the Pats get there? Well, let's look at last season. The Patriots were 10th in points per game from a defensive perspective at 20.4, and that stat is sort of misleading in terms of how good the Patriots' defense was, right? They should have been better than that. They were second in scoring percentage against at 30.5%. They were fifth in yards per play at 5.0. And they were eighth in passer rating against at 83.5. Not to mention that Patriots number at 20.4, 10th in the NFL, despite the crazy number in terms of they were 22nd in opponent's field position at 28.9. So they were put in a really bad situation defensively as it pertains to field position and they still ranked out as the 10th best scoring defense in the NFL. And if you actually like played this out under normal circumstances, the Patriots would have been in the top five in terms of scoring defense, but they were put in such a bad position by their offense. So that defense, we can nitpick some of the things last year. One of the things we talked about on the pod is, hey, when they went up against elite level quarterbacks, they tend to struggle at times, right? Or elite level receivers. We saw it with T. Higgins coming into Gillette and eating up the Patriots defense when it's a little guy and Miles Bryant covering him, right? We've seen Justin Jefferson rip apart this Patriots defense. Stephon Diggs has done it multiple times. Tyreek Hill has done it multiple times. So we can nitpick some of this stuff. But the bigger issue for the Patriots last year is the offense fucked them over. And your hope is now that Christian Gonzalez is part of the fold here, you do have a legitimate bona fide number one corner. Now, still time to tell on that. But The odds are Christian Gonzalez is better than Jonathan Jones as your number one corner option. So the Patriots defense should even be better than it was a season ago. Now, I'm not saying, hey, you added Trey Flowers today. Bring him back. He's been dealing with all these injuries. (laughs) That's not part of the calculus here of why they're going to be good. I mean, they have Judon. They have Uche. They have Duggar. They have Christian Gonzalez. We'll see how this Jack Jones situation sort of plays itself out. Christian Barmore is year three when he actually makes that step forward. I thought that it was going to be last year he has the breakout season. Instead, it's Ramondre Stevenson at the running back position. Is this the year we see Christian Barmore really take a step forward? So it would be very surprising to me if the Patriots, getting back to this whole formula, if they didn't finish in the top 10 in scoring defense. They did it last year despite all the bad situations their offense put them in and without having a legitimate number one corner. Okay, 
So then let's get to the rushing offense. The Patriots last season were 24th in rushing yards per game. The year prior, though, they were 8th. And we've been over the scheme issues and their run block grade via pro football focus was 20th. They were last in ESPN's pass block win rate. We've been over these numbers. So yes, you're concerned about the tackles, Trent Brown, Riley Reef, Connor McDermott, that group, right? But a couple of other elements to this. One of the other things that stuck out to me is we talked with Connor Orr from Sports Illustrated last week, and he pointed out something. He said that good offensive coordinators and play callers create easier blocks for their offensive line. I thought it was a really smart point, and that clearly was not the case last year. But that should be an expectation with Bill O'Brien coming into this season, right? If you take out 2020 for Bill O'Brien when he was with the Texans, because 2020 he only lasted four games there, and really the reason he got his walking papers in Houston, we know it wasn't his coaching ability, it was actually his GMing abilities. Everybody was mad about that DeAndre Hopkins trade, although... Not saying it was worth it for them. DeAndre Hopkins did not have the greatest stretch. And I know I wanted him here, but it's not like he made a huge difference for that Arizona team that did essentially nothing. But you get my point. It's like it was a horrible trade and all that. But if you take out 2020 in Houston, four of his six seasons there, he had a top 10 rushing offense. Four out of his six. So that's pretty good, right? So he should be able to scheme it up. And we know Ramondre Stevenson is an elite back. So with the addition of Christian Gonzalez, the defense should be a top 10 unit again. So you're basically taking a corner and putting him already on a top 10 defense. Bill O'Brien replacing Matt Patricia can get you to that level in terms of being a top 10 rushing offense in the NFL. We saw Josh McDaniels do it just two years ago. So I'm trying to be positive here as we're getting closer and closer to the season that if you look at a top 10 defense and a top 10 rushing offense. Now, even if you string it out a little bit more, like if the Patriots scoring defense rather, is in the top five, then you have a really good opportunity to make a run here where you're putting even less pressure on this offense. So I just wanted to lay that out there in terms of the optimism that we're hearing from Patriots camp, the fact that you're coming off this awful season you had a year ago. I'm starting to, I don't want to say buy into the hype, but I can sort of put together scenarios where the Patriots are playing relevant football, at least late in the season unlike a year ago, and they're not losing all these incredibly ga- incredible games where it's like Ramondre's fumbling against the Bengals. You're throwing the ball. Jacoby Myers is throwing the ball away to Chandler Jones. Like, you can see a scenario with the Patriots who won eight games last year. They're definitely, I would take them to go, FanDuel has it at seven and a half, to go over that seven and a half. You can see a scenario where the Patriots make a little run here, and it's good that all these vibes in training camp are good right now, and we'll see. We'll see what happens when the season starts against Philadelphia. But if you're looking for a scenario where the Patriots take a step forward as a team, get back into the postseason, this is it. We've seen in a recent history of the NFL, top 10 defense from a scoring perspective, top 10 rushing offense. The Patriots certainly have the capability of doing that. All right, it's time now for our greatest Boston bet of the week. Thanks to our friends at FanDuel. And I'm looking at the Red Sox and the Royals coming up on Wednesday night. And good news for the Red Sox, Jordan Lyles is on the mound for Kansas City. Of course, we remember him from his days with Baltimore. When Baltimore wasn't good, Jordan Lyles was part of that equation. Now, of course, the Royals really good. But if you look at Lyles on the season, he has a 624 ERA. That ranks last among qualified starters in the sport. So you can make a real convincing argument that Lyles is actually the worst pitcher in Major League Baseball from a starting perspective. And then you look at his numbers against left-handed hitters. 271 opponents batting average, an 847 OPS, and lefties have hit 13 bombs against Lyles this season. So how about this? For our same game parlay, I'm going with the Red Sox on the money line. I like Jaron Duran for two total bases. He has 30 
doubles against right-handed pitchers this season. That is the most in Major League Baseball, three ahead of Freddie Freeman. I'll go with Yoshida for a hit as well. He's hitting 312 against righties. That's the sixth best mark in the sport. And I like Rafael Devers for a hit as well. He's slugging north of 500 against right-handed pitching this season. So we have the Sox on the money line, Jaron Duran for two total bases, Yoshida for a hit, and Rafael Devers for a hit. All right, coming up next, my buddy John Jastrzemski. We taped our FanDuel TV show. We got into an AFC East preview, some burning questions. So you hear those two segments coming up next. FanDuel has some electrifying news. Get ready to play the hottest phone game of the season with NFL legend Rob Gronkowski introducing Gronk Spike Cornhole, the thrilling cornhole game that lets you play a fun twist on cornhole against Gronk himself. In Gronk Spike Cornhole, the goal is simple. Score as many points as you can by strategically sinking your bags, knocking Gronk's bags off the board, and creating epic combos to dominate the competition. Gronk Spike Cornhole is available on FaceOff, the FanDuel skill gaming app on iPhone and Android. Compete in all your favorite games against real people for real cash on FanDuel Faceoff. There are a wide variety of games, including the classic favorites like Wheel of Fortune, Atari Breakout Blitz, Boggle, alongside the all-new Gronk Spike Cornhole. On FanDuel Faceoff, contests are action-packed and last between two to five minutes, so you can play for cash during commercial breaks, waiting in line at the grocery store, or over a cup of coffee, or whenever works on your schedule. No interruptions, no annoying ads, just pure gaming excitement. Are you ready to compete against Gronk? Run up the score and take home the crown in Gronk Spike Cornhole? Download FanDuel Faceoff now in the Apple App Store or FanDuel.com slash Faceoff for Android users. Age and location restrictions apply. Void where prohibited. See FanDuel.com slash Faceoff terms for terms and conditions. Get in the game today and play Gronk Spike Cornhole on FanDuel Faceoff. Welcome into the local angle on FanDuel TV. I'm Brian Barrett from Off the Pike. And with us, as always, John Jastrzemski from New York, New York. JJ, what's going on, man? Brian, it's always a pleasure to see you. I always love when we have the opportunity to collaborate on these local angles. And uh, I don't know how the folks are feeling up in New England, but I can tell you with the state of affairs with our baseball teams in town, the football <laughs> season in 2023 Cannot get here soon enough, amigo. Can't get here soon enough. Yeah, I'm with you on that. So what we decided to do here is JJ is the resident Dolphins fan, but also, of course, he covers the Jets. I'm here in Boston with the Patriots. So what we wanted to do is sort of an AFC East preview, but a little spin on it. We have some questions here, some burning questions entering the season because this is the best division in the NFL, like the Patriots come into this thing, the worst team in the division, and they're pretty good for being the worst team in a division. So let's start with this one, JJ. More likely, Mac Jones is better than your guy Tua this year, or Tua is better than Aaron Rodgers? So I love this question. It's fantastic. It's juicy on so many different levels. But for me, Brian, it's got to be that Tua is better than Aaron Rodgers because guess what? Whoa. I'm going to tell you why. Watch the film last year. If you watch the <laughs> film last year, and we just look, and, and I understand Aaron Rodgers is a first ballot Hall of Famer, right? Aaron Rodgers is a top, I don't know, eight to twelve all-time NFL quarterback. But outside of the greatest to ever do it, Tom Brady, who north of the age of forty has put up monster, monster seasons. It's it, it's just uncharted waters. For the quarterback position. So do I think yeah. Rodgers will be revitalized? Yeah, you could you could sell me on that. 
But I don't love his offensive line. That's number one. I don't love players who are getting up there in age. And maybe I have some Mets PTSD because of what I just lived through with Justin Verlander, <laughs> who's been much better as of late, might I add, and Max Scherzer. But but Brian, look at Tua last year when he was on the field. Let's say I know the concussions are a big deal, and I know that could be something that clearly derails his season. But we were talking about a guy in early December who was right there with Jalen Hurts and with Patrick Mahomes, statistically speaking, for MVP. So yeah. I know Mac Jones is in a new offense. He doesn't have Tyreek Hill. He doesn't have Jalen Waddell. He doesn't have the whiz kid Mike McDaniel. I like Bill O'Brien, but he's no Mike McDaniel as far as creative <laughs> schemes are concerned. Uh, I'm going to say Tua is more likely to have a better statistical year than Rodgers as opposed to Mac Jones having a better statistical year than Tua. And that's not to say that Mac won't be better this year. I, I just look at that offense for the Miami Dolphins. I think the sky's the limit, dude. Okay, I think the best part of your argument is the 40-year-old thing, right? Because anytime you want to praise Tom Brady, I'm all for it. And Brady did go into Rodgers' house in that postseason in 2020 and beat him. So I certainly understand where you're coming from with that. The reason I tend to say Mac is going to be better than Tua is, and you make a lot of good points too, especially McDaniel really helped him last season. And I want to get to part of that, right? So if you go back to 2021, Mac more yards per game than Tua and a better passer rating. Now, Tua had an incredible season. He was... Third in terms of passer rating behind Purdy and Mahomes. He was first in yards per attempt. He was ridiculous. But the injuries started to pile up, right? And after December, six touchdowns, five interceptions, completed 52.6% of his passes. So he does have all these weapons, but what are the odds, first of all, he stays healthy? And then secondarily, if you look at Mac Jones, his rookie season was promising, right? And now, and I know you are saying that Bill O'Brien's not as good as Mike McDaniel, but you know what Bill O'Brien isn't? Matt Patricia. Like, he's actually a competent offensive play caller, right? So if you look at it, he's going to play to his strengths. We see the quick passing game, the RPOs. And with Mac Jones, you go back to his collegiate season or his last collegiate season at Alabama, 19% of his passes came via RPOs. That was 19%. JJ, he was 73 of 78, 10 touchdowns, no picks, Okay. Last season, Tua, 71 attempts out of RPOs. Remember, they came from a very similar offensive scheme at Alabama. So Mike McDaniel, to your point about the whiz kid, he played up to that with Tua. 71 attempts out of RPOs was the fifth most in the NFL. You know how many Mac had? 19. This is something he did great at the collegiate level, 19 attempts. And then if you look at the play action game, Tua's percentage of dropbacks out of play action, 43.1%. Second highest rate in the entire NFL. Mac Jones with Matt Patricia, 16.7%, 39th out of 41 qualifiers, so a 26.4% difference. So Mac was hurt so bad by his offensive coordinator last year. And look, he had moments last season, JJ, that as Patriots fans, they were aggravating, right, where he's turning the football over, he's complaining to the sidelines and all that. But I just believe having a competent coach playing to your actual strengths, we saw what Mike McDaniel did for Tua. And I believe Tua is the more talented quarterback than Mac, but I could also see Aaron Rodgers, and I know you make the point about 40, but Rodgers sort of seems like he's all in with this Jets organization. I mean, you're there. He's taken pay cuts. I mean, we've never heard Rodgers do anything along those lines, and he has a chance to do something that even Tom Brady never did, which is win an MVP with two different NFL franchises. I think he's going to be highly motivated in New York. I'm betting on or I'm betting against the health of Tua and I'm betting on Bill O'Brien that 
Max sort of narrows that gap. Because if we went into last year, and we had this conversation, actually, you said Tua would be better than Mac. You were right on that. But I don't think from a talent perspective, the difference is so drastic. So I'm going to go with Mac is passing Tua or better than Tua is more likely than Tua is better than Aaron Rodgers. Well, I think you're going against the health of Tua more than anything. And even at the end yeah. of the year, I mean, let's be fair about those end-of-season numbers. Those interceptions piled up in that Green Bay game when the guy was basically concussed in the second half yeah. of the game. So I, I, a good I point. do have to throw a little asterisk on a couple of those numbers because I think he threw either <laughs> two or three interceptions. And I was saying I felt terrible about this, Brian, because I'm like, Tua stole Christmas. I'm miserable. I'm in a rotten mood. And then the following day, I find out he's playing with a concussion. And it made me kind of feel like crap in the moment for just destroying the poor guy. And look, I'm going to credit a team like the Chargers that made some adjustments with that Miami offense. But again, here's my biggest problem for the Patriots offensively. I do think Bill O'Brien is going to provide leadership and a sense of scheme and something that was clearly lacking for New England a year ago. Where are the weapons, though, dude? I'm sorry. I I hear... I think Ben Volan, who covers the Pats, I saw this on Twitter yesterday, so this is what I get for going on Twitter. He's basically raving about old man Devontae Parker looking like the Patriots' best offensive weapon. I'm like, uh, what? Devontae wheelchair Parker? Get him a walker out there (laughs) if you try to keep that guy on the field, for goodness sakes. And look, New England, defensively, I think he's going to be very good. Belichick always is going to go and win a couple of games. Juju Smith-Schuster, Mike Isicki, like, all right, they're a little bit better, but I'm seeing these teams in the AFC, you got guys that are wow, you know what I mean, dude? Like, where is the wow yeah. playmaker for the New England Patriots? And that's a problem yeah. for the quarterback not having that. It's certainly a fair point, and I think that that guy clearly for the Patriots is going to have to be Juju, right? And what we've seen from Bill O'Brien, he likes to really, really feature his best players, and Juju Smith-Schuster by default is the Patriots' best offensive weapon. And I do think from this perspective, he's something that Mac has never had where they've never replaced Edelman. Like, Jacoby Myers was not that type of player where you get open in short areas. Juju did that, not to mention Juju on third down, and I get all the sort of elements of, well, he's playing with Pat Mahomes. He had more yak yards than anybody in the NFL on third down last year. So Juju, I think, will provide at least some stability to that offense. But you're right. They don't have the firepower that some of these other teams have. That's why they're going to have to rely on heavy play action and run the football with Ramondre Stevenson. So you mentioned the defenses. So let's get to this. Which team is going to have the best defense in terms of points per game in the division? Ooh, this is There's a, a lot of good one. defenses, JJ. This defense, this conference or I should say division is loaded with defenses yeah it sure is um I'm gonna go with the Jets and I'm gonna go with the Jets because I think they have ascending talents on their defense I mean you could make the argument defensively that Sauce Gardner is the best defensive player in the division think about that for a minute it's crazy to say because he's only coming off of one year but what he was able to do with corner was eye-popping then you throw in Quinton Williams and the sort of year he had at defensive and defensive tackle. The Jets have a lot of different guys they could shuffle in, in and out. I mean, here's the problem with this take, Brian. I could make an argument for the Patriots if they have yeah. the answers, you know, in certain spots and they shore up that second corner spot. Easily could make that argument. I could make the argument for the Miami Dolphins with Vic Fangio coming in and the sort of impact that he has as a defensive coordinator where... 
Miami, I, I think they were in the 20s last year from a defensive ranking. With all the talent on that Miami defense, that's completely unacceptable as far as I'm concerned. I would have, Brian, honestly, I would have answered this question with the Dolphins before the Jalen Ramsey injury. Now with the J, and I still think Miami's okay at corner and they'll be able to survive that over the first couple of months. But I am just super impressed with what the Jets have from Sauce Gardner to Quinton Williams to DJ Reed, who had a fantastic year. Ulbrich's scheme, I think, is fantastic. I'm going to say it's Robert, and, and it better be the Jets because the Jets are going to need that defense, I think, to be a top flight, top level defense if they're going to go and be a playoff team this year. I'm going to say it's Gang Green. Yeah, I'm with you on this one. I'd like to disagree and say the Patriots, but you make a great point about Sauce Gardner, and you mentioned the Dolphins last year. They were 24th in points per game. The Bills Mark were my second. Words, on this, Brian. They will be better. Yeah. They will be in the top 15 in defense next year with Fangio. There's not a doubt. Oh, I mind. agree with you. I agree with you, even with Ramsey being out for a while, because basically what the Dolphins were trying to do is they were running the Brian Flores scheme after Flores left. They're blitzing all the time, and the problem was they weren't in the top 10 as it pertains to sacks. So they weren't getting to the quarterback yet. They were blitzing all the time, which obviously can certainly hurt you. But I look at the Jets, one of the other things is you mentioned that Sauce Gardner, arguably one of the best corners, if not the best corner in the NFL. And the other thing you look at it, the Jets' defense was really hurt by their offense. They were 30th in where their opponents started drives, right? <laughs> and their offense only scored on 29.9% of their drives. That was 27th in the NFL. And the offense averaged 2 minutes and 31 seconds per drive. Only the Texans were worse. So this offense that the Jets are going to have this upcoming season, it's not just going to be competent. It should be pretty good with Aaron Rodgers, where you would expect it to be hovering around the top 10, and that's going to have a ripple effect on the defense. I'm with you. I think it's the Jets. I think the Patriots are second, and then I think it's the Bills and the Dolphins, but all these are really good units. All right, a lot more to get to, so we'll take a break. JJ, we'll come back. We'll get into some other burning questions here on the local angle as it pertains to this AFC East. Welcome back into the local angle. Brian Barrett from Off the Pike, John Jastrzemski, JJ from New York, New York, as we continue to run through the AFC East, our burning questions. How about this one, JJ? This is juicy. Which team will have the most drama? Wow. I mean, you could make a compelling case that all of these teams may have their fair share of drama if you look at concussions potentially being a factor for Tua and the Miami Dolphins. The Buffalo Bills, who have had a window to try to win a championship over the last couple of years, and is something that we're trying to figure out as far as Stephon Diggs and Josh Allen is concerned, so I got to have that circled. Uh, the Patriots, I guess it's the question of if things go south, who gets more of the blame? Is it Mac Jones? Is it the greatest coach of all time and Bill Belichick? But none of those choices for me. I'm in New York, Brian. This is an obvious one. Aaron Rodgers is in a new city. Aaron Rodgers is dealing with the pressure cooker that is the New York media. He's passed every test so far with flying colors, might I add. Like, he, he's been the toast of New York in the offseason, in the OTAs, in the training camp. But when you throw Rodgers' presence in, a must-win year for Robert Sala, dude, it's got to be the Jets. has to be the Jets. And it's the Jets. Come on, it's the Jets. Yeah, it's the Jets to me, too. Because, I mean, you look at it as well. The first five games, you're Bills in the opener. Then you're at Dallas. You're home for the Patriots. You're home for the Chiefs. You're at Denver. And I know Denver stunk with Russell Wilson, but we'll see what happens with Sean Payton. Then you're home for Philly. You could easily be, after your first six games, two and four. And remember, the big issue for that team last year, the offensive line, pass block grade 29th via pro football focus, ESPN's metric, they were 21st. 
You're there, JJ. You know what's going on. The Dwayne Brown situation. He's old. Makai Becton trying to get back to playing in the NFL. If this thing goes south in a hurry, there's going to be a lot of questions about Aaron Rodgers. And plus, you also look at the fact that you have this situation with Hard Knocks. Who knows what happens after Hard Knocks? I'm very entertained by the Hard Knocks product, but that always, you never know if that's going to work out for the organization. And then the other thing I would say is Brady got off to a slow start in Tampa. Remember, Brady's on Thursday Night Football where he's holding up the fingers. He doesn't know how many downs there are. And after they had that gruesome Thursday night loss, it became the Tom Brady offense again, right? And I know that Rodgers has his guy there as it pertains to Nathaniel Hackett, but that could be an issue. Now, if I was going to go with a second, like a runner-up, it's the Patriots because I'm really wondering this upcoming season with Robert Kraft, like he's been taking some shots at Bill Belichick. Like if Mac Jones looks good and the Patriots aren't getting the results, right? I think that's the most interesting dynamic. If the Patriots, because we could see a scenario where the Patriots look competent offensively, they look competent defensively, but they're playing such a difficult schedule. Robert Kraft, we know, wants to get back into the playoffs. So if he doesn't get into the postseason, it doesn't look like they're getting there midseason, then I wonder if you start to hear some rumblings about the future of the head coach of the New England Patriots, Bill Belichick, which brings us into our next question, JJ. Who is the most likely to make a coaching change after the season? I think it has to be the Jets from this standpoint. And I'm going to tell you why. If they don't make the playoffs, they're going to need a fall guy. Guaranteed, no questions asked, they will need a fall guy. It's crazy. I would argue the team least likely to make a coaching change would probably be the Miami Dolphins. Isn't that crazy to say? Because they've made 10 zillion coaching changes over the last 20 years, but I think they're very comfortable and happy with Mike McDaniel as their coach. Listen, Buffalo's an interesting one, though. Because if Buffalo, let's say, goes 9-8 and this year, and they miss the playoffs, or they lose in the first or second round, there's an argument to be made that maybe they need to spice it up, and that maybe Sean McDermott is not the guy necessarily to go and take them over the top. So for me, and and I just can't envision the Patriots ever making a coaching change unless it's on Bill Belichick's terms and Robert. Like, you're telling me that Bill Belichick and Robert Kraft are going to have a falling out and that Bill's going to be out? Like, I I get it, Brian. It's it's Bill Belichick. It's the New England Patriots. I just can't imagine that we're living in that world. So for me, I would go Robert Salas, Sean McDermott, one and two. Those would be my choices. Yeah, and the other thing as it pertains to the Patriots when we look at the situation is, okay, so if Robert Kraft, and look, I think he likes the perception that he's putting pressure on Bill rather than actually putting real pressure on Bill, right? I just think he likes it to be out there that he's upset. He wants to make it to the playoffs because obviously all the fans rally around that, right? Where it's like, we want to get back into the playoffs. Yeah, everybody wants to get back into the playoffs, right? He's at the party with the... 76ers owner and with Ruben where Ruben the guy from Fanatics is essentially saying he wants ring number seven right Kraft wants that stuff out there but here's the thing if Kraft was ever going to move on from Bill think about what that does to his legacy it actually makes the Brady decision look even worse right because he chose Bill whether or not he doesn't want to admit it right he never wants to admit it this is Bill's decision this is Tom's decision like when things go poorly for the Patriots he doesn't want it to be out there that he could have stopped it he's the owner of the team he could have said hey Tom you're signing here long term I'm making sure I give you the Drew Brees deal you want Bill if you don't want this then you know what I'm moving on from you I'm sticking with the quarterback and Josh McDaniels is the next head coach of the the franchise right so if he had 
done that, or now that he hasn't done that, and Tom already won his Super Bowl, right? Tom got the last laugh with that situation. Well, then it looks like the Tom decision's even worse because a couple of years later, you're moving on from Bill Belichick. So I'm with you. I think it's the Jets because just because of the schedule they play, it's going to be a lot more difficult for them to get into the postseason than what we saw with Tom Brady his first year in Tampa. So if they don't make it, obviously Sal is going to be the guy that they blame. You're not moving on from the quarterback, Aaron Rodgers, after what we've seen the past couple of years or the past two quarterbacks they've drafted in Zach Wilson and Sam Darnold. But I'm with you on the Bills. That could be interesting just because, hey, man, they've been knocking at the door. And it feels like the past couple of years they've been taking steps back, right, where they lose in the playoffs earlier this season, right? So I do wonder. And Josh Allen was bad in that playoff game against Cincinnati. And I know there was a lot of drama going on with that organization in terms of they had to deal with the off the field stuff in terms of the injury situation with Tamar Hamlin. Obviously, that was a really scary thing they had to deal with, but also the drama in the offseason with Stephon Diggs. So they may feel like, hey, we need a new voice to sort of get us over the hump. And we have seen this before with teams that are close. You look at, say, the Denver Broncos, where they had John Fox and they were close. They made it to the Super Bowl and they said, you know what? Enough's enough. They move on to Gary Kubiak. They win the Super Bowl. So maybe that happens, even though they really did set the foundation there with Sean McDermott, which brings us to the Bills that ever since Tom Brady has left the division, JJ, they've taken over. I mean, this, this is their division. They were 6-0 in 2020. The following season, they were 5-1. and And this past season, they were 4-2. and So does the trend continue? Do the Bills actually lose three games in the division this year? So I guess the trend would say yes. I'm going to argue no, though. I'm going to say that Buffalo, who I still think is, they're the team to beat Brian until somebody knocks them off, right? Like, I understand there's a case to be made for Miami to go and win this division. Sure. There's a case to be made for the Jets to go and win this division. Um, I think there's a case for New England to be a playoff team. I don't know if there's a case for New England to go and win the division. That would be a stunner as far as I'm concerned. Um, but I'm going to say that they go and sweep one of those three teams. They've had a lot of success against New England over the last couple of years. Um, they've Don't had remind success. me. Uh, and listen, they have with Miami. It was a miracle. <laughs> My, Miami actually played them the best. They have played Buffalo in about 10 years, even though they went one and two in the particular matchups and should have gone two and one. Actually, they should have gone three and oh, as far as I'm concerned. But I'm going to say Buffalo, because of their pedigree in the division, Brian, I'm going to say they go 4-2 and two again. I, I said 4-2 and two as well. And the reason I said that, JJ, it's a little different than your answer. It's just because if you look at how their schedule matches up, their first game in the Aaron Rodgers era is against, the, or I should say the Bills, Aaron Rodgers' first game is against the Bills. So... I thought that, okay, looking at this when I sort of came up with this idea for them going three and three, I thought to myself, they're going to split with all three teams, right? Like the Patriots are somehow going to win one off them. The Dolphins will win one and the Jets will win one. But now the fact that the Jets open up with the Bills, I actually think the Bills are going to sweep them in sort of the season series. So that's how they get to four and two. If this game was a little bit later. Those are two right there. There you go. Those are two right there. If this game was just a little bit later on in the season, I think the Bills actually dropped to 3-3 three and three because I don't think they're as good as they've been in previous seasons. All right, so how about this, JJ? Let's get to a, a couple of futures here. So from our friends at FanDuel, of course, as we're on FanDuel TV right now, MVP picks in the division. Okay, this is for, obviously, the regular season MVP, but guys in the division. So Allen's at plus 700, second shortest to Mahomes. Rodgers is at plus 1,600. And two is at plus 1,600. Who do you like there from a value perspective? Well, it has to be the quarterbacks, right? Because it has turned into a quarterback award. 
Quarterbacks win the MVP every year. I answered the question earlier. What's more likely to happen? Tua has a better year than Aaron Rodgers. Mac Jones has a better year than Tua. I feel like, got to be pot committed on this one, Brian. Listen, (laughs) he was... Now, asking Tua to go and be the MVP and play the entire season is a monumental risk. I understand that. I think that's why the number is what it is. But for a good chunk of last year, Brian, he was right there. He was right there going into early December. And there's a case to be made that Aaron Rodgers is the toast of New York City and that the Jets are winning games and that they overcome that slow start. There's value with both of those quarterbacks, but I'm going with the one who, to me, has more upward trajectory at this point in his career. I'm going with Tua. Yeah, it's a fair point. I'm going with Rodgers because you said the narrative, right? Because think about it. This can be a narrative award at times. Usually it's either somebody that comes out of nowhere, like 2019 Lamar Jackson. Not that he came out of nowhere. We knew he had a chance to be a great player, but he sets all these records. He's incredibly entertaining and all that. Cam Newton going back to 2015 completely takes over the league, right? But the narrative of Aaron Rodgers where... He's basically won the offseason, right, where he goes from the Packers to the Jets. He's doing all the stuff in New York. I just think that Rodgers is going to be highly motivated. And if the Jets do make it into the playoffs, who gets the credit? It's not Robert Sala. It's not Nathaniel No, it will Hackett. be the quarterback. Right. And, it's not and even, he will be the toast yeah. of the town if that's the case. That is true. Yeah, it's not even Zoss Gardner. So from my perspective, Rodgers is going to be the guy that has a chance to do it. And I actually like the number for both of them at plus 1,600. Like Allen plus 700, it's really not worth it. From there's no value. My thought on that. No yeah, value. there's no value there. Thing, I think for Rodgers or Tua to have a chance to win the award, Miami or the Jets got to win their division, and they probably got to be the one of the two seed in the AFC. That's probably what needs to happen. I'm with you. All right, JJ. Hey, great stuff, man. A lot more coming up here on the local angle. You'll hear from the guys from the Philly special, and of course, you'll hear from Jason Goff from the Full Go in Chicago. I'm sure he's getting ready for NFL season as well because things are not good there with their baseball teams either. They're just fighting. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome back into Off the Pike. Great stuff there from my buddy John Jastrzemski. And look, it's been a tough stretch for the Red Sox in terms of what we saw over the weekend. They do respond on Monday. We're filming, or I should say we're taping here on Tuesday morning. So it is nice to see them get that win on Monday. But I wanted to go football heavy today just because of the fact that we're getting closer and closer to the season. And this division is going to be unbelievable to watch this season. But just a quick baseball note before I get into my top five Celtics wings since 2000. My buddy Kevin Brown, who I graduated college from, I'm sure a lot of you have seen this on social media, is he got suspended by the Baltimore Orioles. He is the TV play-by-play guy for the Orioles organization. So 
basically what he did is before a game, they were playing in Tampa against the Rays. And on the broadcast, which is not all Kevin's idea, right? They come up with a graphic where they're talking about the Orioles getting ready to do something that they haven't done in basically three years. So essentially, the at the time, the Orioles had already taken the first two games from the Rays in their series. And if they had won the game they were doing the broadcast, they would take three or four, so they would clinch a series win in Tampa in the Trop. And if you looked at the previous 16 series, they were 0-15-1. Their last series win was from June 23rd to June 25th of 2017. That's the last time the Baltimore Orioles had won a series at the Trop. So basically, they were just laying that out to start their broadcast. And they actually, the Orioles suspended Kevin Brown. Like, this is the most innocent thing in the world. They're just going out there saying, hey, what their record has been previously against Tampa over the past couple of years. And they essentially suspend him for it. Not essentially, they suspended him for that comment. The Orioles, because everybody picks this up, Awful Announcing picks it up, and a couple of other entities pick it up as well. And the Orioles give a statement we don't comment on personal matters. Like, what? What do you mean personal matters? You suspended somebody. Everybody's saying this is why you suspended them, and they can't even answer the question. So basically what the Orioles are telling you is, yeah, that is actually why we suspended him, but we don't want to say anything about it because it looks really bad. Well, it looks bad now because we already know that this is essentially why you suspended him. But I just can't believe that this happened, that you suspended a play-by-play announcer for referencing the team's record. And this was something that was obviously pre-planned by everybody that was part of the broadcast. Nobody thought this was a problem, right? You had, obviously you have producers, you have directors, you have the people in the truck working on the game. They're putting up this graphic. Nobody thought anything of it. They were just outlying. And by the way, this is like supposed to be a good storyline for the Orioles where they're saying, hey, the Orioles are back to contention and they haven't been relevant for really since those Adam Jones teams, right? They haven't been good for a long time. And now they're back. They're leading the American League East, the best division in Major League Baseball, and they haven't done this since this point. Like, and here's the issue that you have from an Orioles angle on this. The Orioles, they're one of the best stories in baseball. They're a super young team. They have an incredible farm system. They're already getting production from their young players. The Adley Rushmans of the world is already one of the best catchers in the sport. They have one of the best bullpens in the sport. Batista's fucking filthy. This should be the story. The story should be the Orioles are having this incredible season. They're winning the American League East that has the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Toronto Blue Jays and the Rays, who have been one of the best organizations in baseball over the past decade or so. The Orioles are winning this division. And instead, Peter Angelos, the owner of the team, because obviously the buck stops with him. This is his decision here, is this guy has decided to make this a story. How did he not think this is going to be a story? Because you're so sensitive that your organization has been such a dumpster fire, and now it's in a good place that you're still sensitive about being criticized. So you suspend a play-by-play announcer for that. And Kevin Brown, I'm sure a lot of you have seen him. He does a lot of college football for ESPN. He does college basketball for ESPN. He's all over the place. Like, he's going to be fine no matter how this situation plays itself out. But the thing is, all over baseball broadcasts on Monday night, and I'm watching the Red Sox, of course, Dave O'Brien's taking shots at them, and rightfully so. If you go on social media, you'll see Michael Kay taking shots at him. You'll see Gary Cohen from the Mets taking shots at him. You go all over the internet and just look this up. It's an absolute joke. And look, I'm not going to pretend that I'm super close with Kevin anymore, but we graduated from college together. Awesome dude. Super talented dude. There's a reason he's getting all these opportunities. He's going to be fine. This is a fucking disgrace. Like, this is an embarrassment, what the Baltimore Orioles are doing. 
And I usually like, I would never talk about the Baltimore Orioles on this pod unless I was talking about something in terms of the Red Sox. But this is a national story that has completely blown up. And it's one of the dumbest things I've ever seen an owner do. Like we have a lot of dumb owners in sports, but nobody even would have thought about this, right? Like nobody, this would have been nothing. This would have been a non, this, there's nothing controversial. There's no hot takes in this. There's nothing. It's like, it's just open to a broadcast. Nobody would have ever seen this. Nobody across baseball would have known anything about this open during a random Orioles game against the Tampa Bay Rays if it wasn't for Peter Angelos and the Baltimore Orioles deciding, yeah, I don't think we should have our play-by-play announcer on because he referenced our past record. It just, it makes zero sense whatsoever to be that thin-skinned. Like, it's one thing, like, and I'm not defending this, but it's one thing when somebody is like deliberately taking a shot at your organization, taking a shot at your team, and you're sensitive to this. This wasn't even that. He wasn't even taking a shot at the organization. He was just taking the facts from the past couple of years and putting it out there. Like, I cannot believe this is a thing. And like, I see people all over social media on Monday night and early Tuesday morning saying, I've listened back to this a bunch of times trying to figure out what's wrong. There's nothing fucking wrong. Like, I don't know why people keep saying, I'm going to listen back. No, there's nothing wrong with it. It's a simple open to a television broadcast and they suspend him for it. It's absolutely ridiculous. So... By the way, like this is it's going to work out great for Kevin because obviously everybody's behind him that calls games, anybody that's a fan, like everybody thinks this is a joke. And for the Orioles right now, like I I legitimately feel bad for the players. I feel bad for the organization underneath the ownership group, right? Like they should be getting a ton of praise right now. And instead, like and this is not to this is going to sound bad, but this is the biggest story of the Orioles season. They're in first place in the AFC East, or in the AFC East. We're just talking a lot of football, but they're in the first place in the AL East. And this is the biggest story that you have from the Orioles this season. And look, the players have been great. They have this great season. This is a bigger story than anything that's happened with this team this year, which is just incredible to think about because an owner was that thin-skinned. Unreal. Uh, by the way, two other things I wanted to mention with the just baseball-related this stuck out to me because Bayo was outstanding again on Monday night. The guy's incredible getting out of jams and all that. But if you look at Brian Bayo in 2023, he's thrown 108 and two-thirds innings. You're like, why are you pointing that out? Well, the reason I'm pointing that out is Chris Sale, since the start of 2021, so 2021 through 2023, 107 and a third inning. So Brian Bayo this year has pitched more innings than Chris Sale has since the start of 2021. Sale, of course, the five starts prior to the TJ, or the five starts prior to the TJ, the five starts prior to the shoulder injury, he's been great. He was really good during that stretch, and he was great in his last rehab outing, and he's going to get the ball Friday at Fenway, and he's going to be sort of an opener. You're hoping for three to four innings, and I hope he pitches well the rest of the season, but it's just unbelievable to think about that. And I love Chris Sale, love him as a competitor and all that. It's just unfortunate that this is where you're at with the guy where, again, if you just had a healthy Chris Sale, what would it mean for this team? And you look at the fact that Brian Bayo this year has pitched more innings than Chris Sale has over the past two plus seasons. It's just incredible. Coming back from the TJ, he just has not been there from a health perspective. And it hasn't even been elbow related. This time it's a shoulder. We saw last year he's fallen off a bike. He's hurting a rib issue just getting ready for the season. So it's just unfortunate when you think about it from that perspective. Oh, and one other thing. Thinking back to the trading deadline. I really wonder what the value was for Adam Duvall, because if you look at Adam Duvall since coming off the IL, this is entering play on Tuesday. He had four strikeouts in that game on Monday night. And by the way, 
embarrassing play in the field where he didn't go after the ball because he thought it was foul. They end up doubling do the Royals in that particular inning. I believe it was Beatty. I forget if it was Beatty or not, but they end up getting a double and they score two runs in that inning. And if Adam Duvall actually hustles and gets that ball, it's a 2-1 game rather than a 2-2 game because the second run wouldn't have scored later on in the inning because of where you end up allowing a guy to double rather than single. And so the the fielding was bad and he was 0-4 for at the plate with four strikeouts. He swung at 10 pitches. He whiffed at 10 of them. So if you look at these numbers with Duvall coming off the IL since the 9th of June, so this is a big sample size here, 35.7% strikeout rate. That ranks 171st out of 171 qualifiers, dead last in baseball. His called strike plus whiff rate. So how often are you either taking a strike or swinging and missing? 33.4%, 171st out of those 171 qualifiers. In other words, last. His batting average, 193, 164th of 171. His on-base percentage, 261, 163rd. His slugging percentage, 317, 139. His OPS, 633, 150th. So he has been awful since he came back from the injured list. And I just, I also think about it from this perspective because we keep hearing from Heim Bloom that he's looking at the bigger picture with this thing. Well, if you were looking at the bigger picture with this thing, you should have got something for Duvall. Even if it's if it's nothing, you get something for Duvall. But the other part of it in terms of the bigger picture is Duran plays every day, right? Because Duran is part of the future here with this organization. And Duran on Monday night is not in the lineup because you're playing the righty Duvall against a left-handed pitcher. And you totally understand you're still trying to win games if you're Alex Cora, so you're putting your righty out there. But if you just had moved on from Duvall, well, that guarantees that Duran's going to play every day. And right now, it's still an uphill battle, right? Like, the Red Sox really fucked themselves over the weekend by getting swept by the Toronto Blue Jays. If you're in a situation where Durant's playing every day, that's what you want to see as a Red Sox fan right now because you want him to get as many at-bats, right? Because eventually, and they did a really nice job early on in the season where Durant basically didn't play against lefties, but now you want him to get as many at-bats against left-handed pitching for his future. So just getting Duvall out of the picture, would it cleared up an opportunity for Jaron Duran to play every day because you already have Rob Snyder that you know is going to play every day against lefties. You want Duran to be getting all these opportunities because Duran, in terms of his at-bats against left-handed pitching, it's more important for the future of this organization than Adam Duvall right now since he came back from the IL being last in strikeout rate. Duvall is not a big piece of this organization going forward. So I just wish that now looking back at it, if you were, because Heim Bloom didn't want to affect the long-term future, right? That's what we heard about, not getting rentals. Didn't want to do that. Well, if you didn't want to affect the long-term future of the organization, you should be having Jaron Duran play every day, and you should have moved on from Adam Duvall. That's just the reality. And look, maybe some of it is they were worried about the clubhouse, how the clubhouse took it. Well, the clubhouse is already pissed. That you didn't. Or I, don't, I shouldn't say the clubhouse was pissed, but you already didn't do anything for them. So what would have been the difference if you moved on from Adam Duvall? Jaron Duran's been the better player. He just plays every day, okay? So, I mean, at that point, when you're not doing anything, you might as well do something to help yourself long-term, and that would have been playing Jaron Duran every day. That would have helped you long-term. So if you're worried about the future, you should have traded Duvall, like based on what you were saying at the trading deadline. Okay, anyway. I don't want to go too much on the Red Sox because we've done a ton of Red Sox over the past three pods or so, but am looking forward to sale day on Friday night. I will say that, despite the fact that he's barely pitched over the past couple of years. All right, so we do wrap up our Celtics series here. Our top five Celtics wings since 2000. Number one on the list is Paul Pierce, okay? 
So it was down to two guys, of course. It was between Hall or Jason Tatum. So Tatum is the better player. Okay, and don't go nuts when I say this, but Tatum has accomplished more at this point in his career than Paul Pierce did at this point in his career. Like, if you look at after six NBA seasons, and look, Pierce started in the late 90s, but just for the sake of this comparison, just pointing out after six NBA seasons, Tatum, four all-star appearances, Pierce, three. All NBA after six seasons, Pierce, two, both of them third team. Tatum, three, including two first teams. Pierce, by the way, never made a first team in his career. Tatum has already been the best player on a team that went to the NBA Finals. And I get it, he was bad in that series, and I'll get into that later. But the fact is that he was the best player on a team that made it to the NBA Finals. Pierce did get to a conference finals when he was the best player, certainly did that, and we're not disputing that when they lost to the Nets, but he was never the best player on a team that went to the NBA Finals. Kevin Garnett was that for the Celtics. So Tatum is the more accomplished player at this point, and yes, he has had, and this is where you defend Pierce, he's had a much better situation. Remember, Pierce had to deal (laughs) with the Rick Pitino situation at the beginning of his career, and his teammates were not nearly as good as the teammates Jason Tatum has had, right? But if you just look at a sort of his standing in the NBA after six seasons compared to Pierce, and you go to that era, you look at, like, say, the all-NBA team in 02-03, and you look at the guys who are on that list. It's Duncan, Garnett, Shaq, Kobe, T-Mac. Second team was Dirk, Chris Webber, Ben Wallace, Iverson, Jason Kidd. Pierce was on the third team. And if you look at that list, how many of those guys are you taking Pierce over? Webber, you would take Pierce over Webber. And... Weber did not show up in big games. We know this. Ben Wallace, even though he's a champion and all defensive team and all that, won multiple defensive player of the year awards. You take Pierce over him, more important position. T-Mac was better than Pierce in like a short stint, but he had too many injuries. Like T-Mac, you look at him, he averaged 32 points per game in 03. This guy was filthy. He was sort of like LeBron before LeBron as that point forward. He's a really good passer, incredible scorer. Duncan, no. Garnett, no. Shaq, of course, no. You're taking Shaq over him. Kobe, no. Kid, no. Kid carried teams to the NBA Finals. Dirk went down as a better player. Iverson, he didn't win a championship, but he won an MVP and a league scoring title. Iverson had a better career than Pierce, despite the fact that Pierce won the NBA championship. So this is not supposed to be an indictment on Pierce. I have him number one on this list. I'm just pointing out that Tatum has achieved more at this point. And he's played at a higher level when you compare Tatum to his peers at that time compared to Pierce at his peers at that time. And remember, Pierce had to do everything by himself and with little Antoine Walker sprinkled in there. We'll get to him in a little bit here. But Pierce had a much harder job than Jason Tatum. But if you just look at after six NBA seasons, it was Tatum that had the higher standard in the NBA. But with Pierce, you look at everything he did in his time here. It's amazing to look at where he is on the Celtics record books. Third in games played behind only Havlicek and Robert Parrish. Third in minutes behind Havlicek and Russell. Second in points behind Havlicek. He's first in steals. He's first in free throws made. And if you look, if you're a VORP guy, which is basically like the NBA's version of war, he's second behind only Larry Bird. And that was not around to be abundantly clear when Russell and Havlicek were playing. But still, I mean, since 1980, second to Bird on that list. He's a member of the 75th anniversary team, the top 75 players of all time in the NBA. His number 34, as we all know, is retired with the Celtics, and he's a 10-time All-Star. And most importantly, and why he's ahead of Jason Tatum on this list, even though Tatum has had the better start to his career, Pierce had the rest of his career, it's the longevity, and he did it. He won the championship. And even if he wasn't the best player on that Celtics championship team, he won a title, and he was outstanding during that playoff run. Really great run. You go back to the championship run, the outstanding 41 points in Game 7, against LeBron James. He really carried that team. He was 11 of 12 from the line. Pierce scored 
41 of the 97 points for the Celtics in that game. So he scored 42% of your points. The rest of the Celtics starters combined for 33. So Pierce outscored two Hall of Famers in Ray and Kevin Garnett, right? I mean, there are two other Hall of Famers out there with you. Then in the Detroit closeout game in game six, he did it again, 27 points. He got to the line 13 times. That's something that Pierce was so great at. He had eight boards in that game as well. Pierce is incredible getting to the free throw line. Over nine free throws per game, three different times in his career. 05-06, he was at 10.3, which was fourth. 0203, he was 9.5. That was third behind only Shaq and T Max. This is a guy that consistently got to the free throw line from that wing position. He was so damn strong and he could get to his spots, right? And by the way, just getting back to that title run, in the Lakers series, he had some ridiculous passing games. He had 10 assists in the clincher and a 28 in that win over, and in the game two, win over the Lakers, he had 28 and 8. Pierce in the NBA Finals, he was a plus 52. That was nine points better than. Any other player in the finals. So he was outstanding when it came to that. Of course, won the MVP. And before the Garnett years, remember the epic comeback against the Nets in the conference finals. He went for 19 in the fourth quarter. Remember, they came back from 21. Like, I know they lost the series, but that was an awesome moment, that great comeback. And he became a much better defender when KG got here as well. I mean, you got to give him credit for that. He wanted those one on one matchups. He was so good in that elbow area. That was his sweet spot. If you look at it from 05, 06 through the 08, 09 season, he finished in the 80th percentile via cleaning the glass in mid-range jumpers during that stretch. And if you look at 0405, the impact Pierce had, the Celtics outscored teams by 3.2 points per 100 with Pierce on the court. That was in the 77th percentile. He carried them to a 45 and 37 record. That was not a super talented team, and Pierce carried them. The on-off differential that season, this is the big one in terms of cleaning the glass. In 04-05, when the Celtics went 45-37, and 37, the Celtics were 10.6 points per 100 better than better with Pierce on the court than off it. That was in the 94th percentile. So in other words, when Pierce was off the court, the Celtics were a joke. He carried that team. Just a staggering number. So an all-time great Celtic, he gave you 15 seasons. And I think one of the really cool things about Pierce is he's a Celtic. Like, he's at these big playoff games. He's pumping up Tatum and Jalen Brown. He did that interview with KG and the current Celtics, which I thought was really cool. He cares about the organization. And we don't have a lot of Celtics like that currently, right? Where you look at it like, we have Ortiz with the Red Sox, who, like, from a national media perspective, he's doing his thing. He's all over the place. And we know he likes to troll the Yankees and all that. If you look at the Patriots guys, like, sort of Julian Edelman's becoming that guy now, where he was recently at... Patriots training camp. I know like Brady is our guy, but Brady's not going to be like Edelman always around the Patriots type thing. And I'm not saying Edelman's always going to be around the Patriots, but he's going to be around the Patriots a lot more than Tom. Of course, Tom's going to get honored in the first week of the season. But just the fact that Pierce is like the guy with the Celtics, it's really cool. And maybe I'm just corny, but I kind of love that shit when the old guys are at the games. And I'll say this, those early 2000s teams, him and Antoine, they made it to the playoffs four straight years. And as we said, that included a conference finals appearance. They made basketball relevant here again. We knew probably they weren't going to win a championship with that duo. But the reality was we did not have interesting basketball in the 90s from a Celtics angle on this, right? I remember growing up, I was watching more college basketball than I was NBA basketball. I was watching the Big East. That's what I was watching as a kid because the Big East was always on on Monday. And the Celtics were one of the worst teams in the NBA for a long stretch. You had the whole Patino situation. And Antoine and Pierce made me want to watch the Celtics. I grew up on the Celtics sucked, and they made me want to watch the team, which I think that's an accomplishment 
in and of itself and something I'm grateful for because that's really when I fell in love with the NBA was the fact that these guys were actually making this organization relevant. All right, number two is Jason Tatum. The one and two is obvious here. And we went through some of the Tatum stuff. We went through that when we got into Pierce, but he just wrapped up his 24-year-old season. He's played in the conference finals four out of his six seasons. So Tatum has certainly had some low moments in the postseason. We go back to the NBA Finals. He, from two-point territory against Golden State, 24 of 76, 31.6%. No qualified player that season was south of 42.9%. Tatum was at 31.6% of the finals. Like The Warriors figured some stuff out with him. That's still an area you'd like him to get better. In between the rim and the three-point line, something you'd like to see him work on this offseason. And even in the Philly series, the thing about that one, he was trending in the wrong direction, but to his credit, remember what he did? End of game six. He pulls out the big shots, right? He had missed 14 out of his first 15. He missed his first six threes, but then he buried that three to give the Celtics an 84-83 lead where he had the step back on Embiid, and then he hit another one to make it 87-83, and then another one to ice it to make it 95-84. And after the game, he called himself humbly one of the best basketball players in the world. And that's where I felt like, all right, there's something different with this guy. Like he was in a really bad spot in terms of he couldn't hit anything, And he dug himself out of that hole. Like, that was a moment. And then in Game 7, what happens? He sets the record for most points ever in a Game 7 where he goes for 51. And then after being down three games to none against the Heat, he took over that series. Game 4, 33, 11 rebounds, 7 assists. Then you go to the next game, Game 5, the blowout win, 21 points, 8 rebounds, 11 assists. Game 5, where he had the Derek White buzzer beater. Or Game 6, rather, the Derek White buzzer beater. 31 points for Tatum. 12 rebounds, 5 assists. Got to the line 15 times. So those three games, he was a plus 43. The Celtics outscored the Heat by 43 points with Tatum on the court in those three wins in a row for the Seas. So then game 7 happens, rolls the ankle, was clearly not the same. I still believe that if you go back to that game, that was obviously the turning point. Jalen ends up having all the turnovers. Tatum could barely move. So that sort of screwed them over. But you saw Tatum not only in the Philly series, fight back. And this is where you feel really good about the guy who's only next year going to be in his 25-year-old NBA season. Didn't have it against Philly for a large stretch, finds it at the end of game six, bails you out, wins the game. And then in the Heat series, down 3 nothing, no quit whatsoever. He dominates that series until game seven, I should say from games four through six. And then you just look at a season in general as a 24-year-old, the 24-year-old season, he was six in points per game at 30.1, and he was six in the NBA in plus minus. So the impact, we always reference this with Tatum, it's been undeniable. So yes, the finals, they were not good. Part of the Philly series was not good. But to have this level of success this early in your career, it's not normal. And the Celtics have recognized the urgency to their credit. They realized they needed a change. They went after a big in Kristaps Porzingis this offseason to give this team a new look offensively where he can stretch the court and then secondarily he can score in the post a little bit. And part of the urgency is because of Jason Tatum. Like, you have a guy in the league right now. You have to do everything you possibly can to try to strike now and win a championship. And the other thing I would say about Tatum is when you look at Porzingis coming here, and this is an indirect effect, not a direct effect. It's not like Tatum was out there recruiting him. But Kristaps Porzingis is with the Celtics because of Jason Tatum, right? Because of the fact that if you look at it, Kristaps Porzingis opted back into his contract or opted into the contract so the Celtics can make a trade. Remember, he had the ability to be a free agent, but he wanted to come to the Celtics. And even if you say, hey, it's not just Porzingis wants to play with Tatum. Nobody wants to play on a team that has an opportunity to win an NBA championship. And the reason the Celtics have a chance to win an NBA championship is why? 
because they have Jason Tatum. So that's why Kristaps Porzingis wants to come here. The chance, the opportunity to win a championship, Jason Tatum just being as good as he's been this early in his career deserves a lot of credit. And I know Brad Stevens pulls off the trade, but Jason Tatum deserves a ton of credit for that trade even being a possibility. If the Celtics were not this elite team, they wouldn't be trading for Kristaps Porzingis. The reason you are an elite team is because of Jason Tatum. And if you look at sort of some of these other teams in the NBA, where to the Celtics' credit, they've done an outstanding job supporting Tatum roster-wise, look around the league, and I get you always have to be a little bit cautious here because it's the NBA, but these other teams could be in real trouble with their stars soon, right? Like, I get it in the NBA, there's so much mobility, so I don't want to say never say never with Tatum, but these other teams, you could see these guys asking for trades sooner rather than later, right? Like, look at the Mavericks and how poorly they're run. They let Brunson walk. They trade their best defensive player in Dorian, uh, Dorian Finney-Smith, rather, for Kyrie Irving. What happens? They don't miss out on the playoffs. What happens this season if they miss out on the playoffs? Like, the West is loaded right now. If that's a bad situation, is Luka asking for a trade after the season? Then you look at, say, Embiid, a guy that just won the MVP. Look at his situation in Philly. They had Jimmy Butler. They didn't bring him back. That was the best team they ever had. They almost beat the Toronto Raptors, who won the NBA championship that season. What happens if that situation doesn't go well? Is Joel Embiid, who already hinted at it when he was talking about the Knicks, even though he said he was essentially said on, in, on Twitter that he was trolling, look at his middle name on his Twitter account. If things go south there, that's a mess. Like they had the Ben Simmons situation. Now they have this whole situation with Harden. So my point with all this is these other star level players, all NBA first team guys like Luka, like Embiid, that are in sort of this group, they're playing for poorly run organizations right now. So the point being, those guys, Luka and Embiid, they can look at their organization and they can say, hey, I want to leave because you haven't done enough for me. The Celtics, they're not providing Tatum that opportunity. With Tatum, that's not the case. They've already put great teams around Jason Tatum, and they just doubled down to try to make it better. They said, hey, we made it to the finals. We made it to the conference finals, but we want to do something different because we think it's going to help you win an NBA championship. Like, we're active trying to improve this team, and we're trying to do something with Kristaps Porzingis that we didn't have before. So Tatum, unlike these other guys, if he doesn't win a championship, it's not going to be the organization's fault. It's going to be the player's fault. And I'm not saying, T I believe Tatum's going to win a championship here, but I'm just pointing out how much better his situation is than other teams or there are other stars in the league. And like you'd look at it with Pierce, right? He had the second part of his career where he won a championship. Tatum, as we reference, has started better than Pierce. But if he doesn't win a title here, it will feel like a disappointment. And I believe he's going to do it, as I said. But the point being... You have your guy, he's set up to win, now he just has to get the job done. How about this though, Tatum, just how much experience he's had? This is a ridiculous number I found that, so since Tatum came into the league, he's played in 94 playoff games. Pierce's first six seasons, just 30. Wild to think about how much playoff experience that Jason Tatum already has. All right, number three on the list is Jalen. So we've done a lot of Jalen stuff this summer with the Supermax, et cetera. And we think about some of the issues he had in the playoffs, the eight turnovers that we referenced in game seven against Miami. But we can also forget that some of the other moments he's had in the postseason. He had 30-plus points in the final three games in that Atlanta series. He was really good in the conference finals two years ago. Remember in that conference final series against Miami, 59 of 121 from the floor, 48.8%, 19 of 47 from deep, 40.4%. He averaged 24.1 points per game. He had a case to win the Larry Bird Trophy, whatever it's called, for the MVP of that series over Jason Tatum. Butler had a case too, but Tatum went for 25. He did it le less efficiently than Jalen. 46.2 compared to 48.8.
and 35.3 compared to 40.4. So he did have a case, and he was definitely better than Tatum in the finals. Not that that was a big accomplishment, but we've referenced some of the impact stuff with Jalen where he doesn't grade out well there like Tatum does. But the reality is he finished with 26.6 points per game this past season. That was ninth in the NBA. He's a top 10 scorer in the NBA. And look, take the Nuggets out of this conversation here. If you look at the stars in their prime or just about to hit their prime in the case of Tatum, like I would consider Embiid in his prime. Jokic is obviously in his prime. A guy like Jason Tatum's about to hit his prime, right? Luka is at his prime or just about to hit his prime in terms of the age, right? So if you look at how many of these other teams have a better second option, like these young up-and-coming stars or the established stars, Embiid, he would take Jalen as his number two, right, over Harden. You look at Luka, he would take Jalen as his number two over Kyrie, right, because of all the stuff you deal with with Kyrie. Then you look at Shea, he would take Jalen as his number two. And look, maybe Chet eventually, and OKC's onto something really special there, but Shea would take Jalen right now. Like, nobody else is better than... Jalen Brown on the Thunder right now. Anthony Edwards, he would take Jalen Brown over Coral Anthony Towns, and those guys are friends anyway. How about a guy like Trey Young? I don't put him in that star territory, but there's nobody on the Atlanta Hawks that he would take over Jalen Brown. You're not taking Murray over him, right? So yes, he's not the perfect player, but he's a great secondary option. I'd like to see him take less threes because he's such an effective mid-range scorer. And if you look at it at the rim, he's been outstanding as well. At the rim last year, 304 of 429, 70.9%, 82nd percentile. 92 of 195 on long mid-rangers. That's 14 feet to the three-point line. 83rd percentile at 47.2%. So I'd just like to see him dig into that a little bit more. He's never going to be a great three-point shooter. I still do have my concerns about how long he wants to be here. It just feels like the whole contract situation, we've talked about the $304 million, it was the best situation for both sides. Where if you're the Celtics, you needed to give him this contract because what were you going to do? Trade him? You didn't have a lot of leverage because he's entering the final season with the team. And Jalen, you're not going to pass on $304 million because you're not getting anywhere near that in free agency. So this was the best situation for both sides. I do worry about Jalen's long-term future with the organization. I'm not talking about next year. I obviously can't get traded. I'm talking about down the road. Jalen and Tatum have to win a championship together over the next couple of years or else for the sake of Jalen... Either he's going to want to get out because maybe he's taking too much blame, he wants his own team, or the organization is going to pivot and say, you know what, we've given this a long time. Jalen was drafted in 16, Tatum was drafted in 17. This pairing, it's really good, but we need a little something different to get over the hump. So that's what Jalen and Tatum have as their challenge over the next couple of years here. Okay, number four on the list, employee number eight, Antoine Walker. Now, Antoine came into the league in 96, that great 96 draft. But And he made the All-Star game in 98 before 2000s. But from 2000 to 2003, four seasons, he was over 20 each year. He was a two-time All-Star during that stretch. He was ahead of his time. He took, remember, we had him on the show. We asked him about this. He took eight threes per game in 02. <laughs> now, the percentage was not great. But remember, he famously was asked, why are you taking so many threes? And he said, because there's no fours. And actually, when we had Antoine on the pod, we asked him about that and he was asked this question at the All-Star game. Then he said he was actually hung over. He was out all night the night before when he had that question. He just came up with it. It was a great answer because there's no force. He was an entertainer. He had the Antoine shimmy. And if you go back to the year they made the conference finals, Walker averaged 22.1 that year in terms of points per game, second on the team, 8.8 rebounds per game. He led the team there, and he averaged five assists a game. That's a really good number, and he, he led the team at assists. I mean, twice he averaged five assists per game with the Celtics at the four position, essentially, right? I mean, because he's a wing. He's like a, He was one of the original stretch fours, right? And remember, it was Antoine was the guy 
that I referenced that comeback earlier with Pierce, it was Antoine who got in Pierce's face to sort of get him motivated when the Celtics overcame that deficit against the Nets. But if you look at it, 2000-2001 season, he led the NBA in three-pointers made as a wing, right? As a guy that he's taking a bunch of threes, like ahead of his time. 0-1-0-2, second in made threes per game behind only Ray Allen. 0-2-0-3, he was second in three-pointers made. So... Three straight years, he finishes in the top two in three-pointers made, including leading the NBA in three-pointers made one of those seasons. The stretch four, man. Now, as the boss has mentioned on his pod before, Kenyon Martin sort of exposed him in the playoffs. Antoine wasn't ready for that level of physicality, if you will. If you look at the final two games of that net series, he was 5 of 20, 25%, 13 points, 7 of 20, 35%, 16 points. And Bill has said on his pod that that's when he knew like that Antoine... This wasn't, Antoine wasn't ready to be that type of player. Kenyon Martin sort of got the best of him. So what we realized after that is Antoine probably not going to be the number two guy on a championship team. Good for Antoine. He went to the Heat. He won a championship. He's on that 06 team. But that stretch of Celtics basketball with Pierce, I referenced this earlier with Pierce and Antoine. It was awesome. I love watching Antoine play. The shimmy and all that. And I get it. Like, you never got over the hump with Antoine Walker. But that guy was a fun player to watch. He was a good soundbite. So Antoine Walker, number four on the list. Okay, five is where it gets difficult. Because the top four is obvious, right? You're talking about Pierce, Tatum, Jalen, Antoine Walker. Okay, so like you think about it, James Posey, he was here briefly. Great bench guy, great shooter, was awesome for that 08 Celtics team, and a really good defender. Jeff Green had a nice run when he came back. He had a 17-point-per-game season. He had a nice stretch here. Jay Crowder. The thing about Jeff Green, though, you know what I'll say this about Jeff Green? He would have like 46 points in the next game. He had like two. Like that's what he was. He was an incredibly talented guy. I'm happy that he just got his ring, especially everything he went through with the heart situation. I'm glad he got his ring with Denver and all that. And he just got paid to go play for like the Houston Rockets. Like I, I love Jeff Green. Like he, he's awesome. Competitor seems like an awesome guy, but he's just like so up and down from game to game. I think probably the issue is early on in his career going as what the fourth pick in the draft. He was overtaxed. Like eventually when they trade, Perk for Jeff Green, like he was overtaxed. They wanted more from him than he could really provide. And he's really, he's he's a nice role player. But I mean, he had a nice stretch here. Jay Crowder had a nice run. 39.8% from deep one year. He had averaged 14 a game in that 16-17 season. I really like Crowder. He brought an edge. Now, I think he's a little bit, he's a little bit too much for me now. Like I would not want him on the Celtics. He's, I think he thinks he's better than he is, which can be a positive in some sense. But it also can be a negative when he shoots you out of a game. He tends to do that. Marcus Morris had a nice stretch here. The conference finals year, he averaged 13.6 per game. This guy was a black hole, though. The next time he passes the ball will be the first time he passes the ball. Marcus Morris, he is allergic to passing. Ricky Davis, that that guy, man, he was a chucker, okay? He averaged, what, more than 16 a game one year, but this guy took a ton of shots. I was never the biggest fan of Ricky Davis's game, okay? Wally Zerbiak, remember, he... Missed the shot on his own hoop so he could get a triple-double. Wally Zerbiak, he came over in that trade 06-07, averaged 17 and a half a game one year. So he's certainly somebody that had a nice little stretch, but nothing significant for the Celtics. We mentioned Tony Allen. We put him in the guard category, but that's kind of the group. So the guy that I went with is Hayward. And Hayward, I get it. Like, I talked about Kemba, how it was kind of disappointing. Same thing you can say about Hayward, but there's not really a great fifth option And Hayward, remember, he breaks his leg his first game ever with the Celtics. It was gruesome. But then you look at, say, like 1920, 17.5 points per game, 6.7 rebounds per game, 4.1 assists per game. Like, those are really good numbers. And yes, 
in 19, he kind of indirectly caused some controversy. Remember, guys were pissed that Hayward was getting more playing time. Like Jalen was part of that group that was upset. Marcus Morris was part of that group that was upset. But I never really understood, like, what was Brad Stevens supposed to do? The organization paid this guy a max contract. And you wanted to get him right because the reality is he's a much better player than Marcus Moore. So him having an issue with that, like, I understand, like, you're a competitor individually. You want more minutes. But what Tatum, could, oh, wait, excuse me, what Tatum, what Hayward could provide was going to be more valuable if it hit, if he got back to himself. So, and it took him a while. But 1920, it looked like he was getting back to that. And even since then, like, since he's gone to Charlotte, he's had all these injuries. But the bubble year, remember, he missed the birth of his child because he was in the bubble because he wanted to try to stick it out and help the Celtics team wins. Unfortunately, he gets hurt in the bubble as well. He gutted that out and came back for the end of the Heat series. Wasn't himself from a health perspective, but he gutted that out. And if you go back to the 1920 season, the Celtics with Tatum, uh, excuse me, I don't know why I keep calling him Tatum, with Hayward on the court, the Celtics outscored teams by nine points per 100 possessions with Hayward on the court. That's a ridiculous number. Only Tatum was better among the Celtics regulars that season. That's how in important that Hayward was to that offense. He was their best playmaker. He was a better playmaker than Kemba Walker was. Better passer than Kemba Walker. And Smart didn't have like a big role in the offense. Yet I always thought that they underused Hayward as a ball handler. Like I kept doing this thing back then in 1920 when I was with my former employer. I wanted them to just make Hayward the point guard because it was clear he wasn't going to be the level of scorer that Jason Tatum was at that point. He lost a little bit as it pertains to his athleticism. Just put the ball in his hands because he runs Brad's offense and he's a really good passer. That's what I wanted. They never really dug into that too much, but I wish they had. And you look at that season with him on the court, 24.5 assists per 100. That would have been 11th in the league. Without him, 21.5, 29th. Just more evidence that the ball moved better. With Hayward on the court that season, the Celtics had a 115.9 offensive rating. That would have been tied for the league's best offense. Without him, that dipped to 11.9, which was seventh, so still pretty good. But you basically, with Gordon Hayward on the court in 1920, you played like the league's best offense. So look, he was their best playmaker. He was incredibly talented. Unfortunately, it didn't end the way you would have liked it to end here. It didn't start the way you would have liked it to start here. But I just don't have a guy that at fifth I feel better about than Gordon Hayward. And I think we forget about how good he was in 1920 for this team. And it just really sucks that his career will be defined by injuries because he was such a good playmaker for this team. Like, I would love him on the Celtics right now. The problem is he has a big contract and he's a guy that is always hurt. I mean, every year this guy is now dealing with injuries, which is kind of crazy because before he suffered that broken ankle, that broken leg against the Cavaliers in his first game ever in a Celtics uniform, the guy was never hurt in Utah. So I just wish it worked out differently, but I I do really think that Gordon Hayward was, if he could, if they just had him for one more year, maybe he doesn't get hurt, maybe he shows like what he can be. I just thought he was an outstanding playmaker. And one of the issues that's been going on with the Celtics team for a couple of years now, they don't have enough playmaking. Like Gordon Hayward, a healthy Gordon Hayward would have been perfect in that role. But unfortunately, that's not how it works for the Celtics. All right, we bring in now a producer extraordinaire, Jamie McClellan. Jamie, so what do you make of this list, man? I mean, the top four, pretty easy to sort of rank them, but... I mean, you're pretty good at this. Is there anybody I left out as it pertains to the honorable mentions? Would you take Hayward off the list? Like, is there anybody we left out here? Uh, I think you had the exact same list that I had, including the honorable mentions. Um, and that includes Hayward at five. But as you mentioned, it just it didn't, didn't spark a lot of joy putting him at five. Like, it's the right pick, but it doesn't bring a smile to my face. You know, the way some of these guys are honorable mentions that maybe not as talented, but I think I enjoyed watching them play more for whatever reason. Maybe it's unfair. Like Marcus Morris, you said black hole, but I kind of liked when he had the ball in his hand. 
Kind of fun. He was tough, and he he would like he would mix it up. Remember, he went and at it with Embiid when mm-hmm. Embiid was talking shit to him, and he was holding up the three zero, like they're up three games and <laughs> on. So yeah, he did bring a certain level of toughness. I just the guy never passed the ball, and I do think he was sort of a problem with the team in nineteen yeah. when there was this divide where it was the Kyrie guys, and he was on the Kyrie side of things. You had the Jalen side of things, and I know Jalen and Kyrie are cool now, but he was a problem when it came to that. And the other guy that, you know who I thought would definitely be in the top five when he was drafted? This is a horrible take by me. I thought James Young was going to be, like, legit. Mm. I love James Young when they drafted him out of Kentucky. He was on that loaded Kentucky team. I'm like, this guy is going to be great for this team. But he just never had a motor. I thought he was going to be on I'm like, swing man. He can shoot. He can do yeah. all this different type of stuff. He can beat you off the dribble. But he just never really had it for the Celtics team. I can't think of really anybody going back to, like, the early 2000s that you would put in this category over the guys we have here. So that, I mean, and look, that wasn't the best era of Celtics basketball, but I mean, that's pretty much the list. Jeff Grant, I thought Jeff Green had a nice stretch, as sure. I mentioned. I remember he had a huge game. I forget who it was against. He had like a 50 or 40 something point game. And I'm like, Jeff Green has finally figured out. Then it's like, oh yeah, this is what Jeff Green does. He's up and down. He's, he's a yo-yo. But overall, I feel pretty good about mm-hmm. the list. Do you think that in 10 years from now, if we do this list, or let's say five years from now, Tatum has passed Pierce. Uh, I hope so. I think he's got to win. I think if he wins one championship, I think you could basically make the argument because I agree. That's a good take. I agree with that take. If he wins one championship, he passes Pierce because from an individual perspective, he's already achieved more right Mm -hmm. than Paul Pierce has. And look, I I know he's going to get to the 10 time All-Star, but in terms of the first team All-NBA teams, Pierce never did it. And Tatum's done it now. Two times. He's going to be a super max player coming up in a year from now. So I understand that he's still got to do this. But if he wins it, he's got to, first of all, he's got a higher profile than Pierce ever did in the NBA. I do think that he'll pass him. Now you can say, okay, well, what if he leaves after that? Well, if he wins a championship, you really think he's going to he leave? can't go anywhere. No. No. Like, and that's what I hope, too. Like, we've seen this so often in sports recently where, look, like Brady was here forever and then he went to Tampa Ortiz was here forever. Char was here forever. Bergeron is here forever. I hope, and I know it's not common in the modern NBA, but I hope he is a guy that sticks around with the organization the whole time. And right now, like to the Celtics credit, as I was pointing out, I mean, how many teams have done a better job helping their superstar? Even if you look at the Bucs, like they won a championship. Okay, they got lucky in that Middleton trade years ago for Brandon Knight, and that's not even the same front office anymore. They made the Drew Holiday trade. That's not like an unbelievably talented team around Giannis. I love Drew Holiday. The guy's an incredible defender. But look across the league. Like, yeah, okay. The Golden State Warriors, they drafted Klay Thompson after Steph Curry. That worked out perfect. They got lucky with Draymond Green in the second round because if they thought Draymond Green was as good as Draymond Green is, they would have drafted him a lot earlier than the second round. Remember, that's the same year that they drafted Harrison Barnes. We mentioned the Mavericks earlier. That's been a complete dumpster fire. You look at, okay, so now the Suns are going after all these superstars, but they couldn't put a great team around Mm -hmm. Devin Booker for a ton of years to the point where he thought, oh, is this a guy that is just a good stats, bad team guy to use the boss's sort of idea that he always mentions, good stats, bad team guy. Is that what he is? And then we found out, no, he's actually really good when he finally got Chris Paul, but Chris Paul was older. And now this group, you trade everything away to get Kevin Durant. We'll see. Like now they're trying everything they possibly can to win with Devin Booker, but it wasn't organic and it took a while to get to this point. You think about New Orleans previously with Anthony Davis, they could never put the right team around him. So you just look across the league, like how many guys, how many superstar level players 
have had a better situation than the way that this team is building around Jason Tatum. There's really not a lot of them. And that's why I think I give the Celtics a lot of credit for this. Like now it's on Tatum to get this. And look, I'm not trying to make it sound like, oh, Tatum's got all this pressure. Like the guy's had an incredible start to his career. But you're not going to find at least unless he like teams up with one of his buddies down the road. And it's like him and I don't even know, like Devin Booker, a team up together down the road and they get some big man to team up with them, too. Like, I just don't see a lot of better situations that Jason Tatum's going to find himself in. So I don't think there'd be any reason for him to want to leave. No, I think he's got all the pieces. It's time for him to make it happen. I mean, look at number three on the list. It's Jalen Brown right on his team currently, you know, in his prime. So, yeah, he's got it all cooking for him. I think the one thing about Pierce, I'd say, and maybe this is unfair to Tatum, but Pierce, you know, he always delivered in the postseason, even when they didn't win. He always showed up. He didn't have these stinkers. At least maybe it's too far in the past that I've forgotten. But Tatum definitely been a bit shaky. It's time for him to, you know, a bit more stabilizing in the playoffs. Yeah, Pierce was a really good postseason player. Really good postseason player, especially mm-hmm. in 08, too, because Ray, and we talked about this in the guard spot, Ray did not have it for a while in that postseason yeah. run. And Pierce had to carry that team in terms of, in terms of the scoring load. He was an outstanding postseason player. Never forget 08. Never forget 08, man. So Pierce, number one on the list. Tatum, number two on the list. All right, Jamie, good stuff, man. Thanks, Brian. All right, as always, make sure to get your voicemails in. 617-396-7172. Email your thoughts and questions to offthepike at gmail.com. Thanks to Jamie McClellan and Steve Surdy for producing this podcast, and we'll chat in a couple of days. Must be 21 plus and present in select states. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino, LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Tennessee, and Virginia. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org chat in Connecticut. 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com in Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana, visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland, visit 1800gambler.net in West Virginia, call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming, hope is here, visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call one 877 8 Hope NY or text Hope.